Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Our topic on Looking Forward today is money and matters related to money. And we have the perfect guest to help us with that. She's Jill Schlesinger. Jill is a certified financial planner and the Emmy-nominated and Gracie Award-winning business analyst for CBS News, where she translates complicated business and economic news into understandable, relatable topics for everyday viewers and listeners. Jill covers the economy, markets, investing, and anything else with a dollar sign on TV, on the Jill on Money podcast, on radio, including her nationally syndicated show, Jill on Money, which, by the way, won the 2018 Gracie Award for Best National Talk Show, on the web, and her blog, Jill on Money. Jill also won a 2018 Personal Finance Reporting Award from the Radio Television Digital News Association National Endowment for Financial Education. And her first book, the Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money was published in February 2019 by Ballantine Books. Hi, Jill. Welcome to Looking Forward. Well, after all of your nudging, how could I not be on this show with you? Are you kidding me? I was hoping you wouldn't mention that. Anyway. Why? It's good. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> I, you know, people need to know that we have a pre-existing relationship, one that has been nurtured by your great efforts. <laughs> Jill, can you please tell us a bit about your path to first becoming interested in money, economics, and investing, and all of that stuff, and now becoming a nationally recognized expert on these matters? Oh, expert. You, you know, you don't believe in expert, do you? Um, <laughs> so I grew up in a family, in a household where um, there, my dad was a trader on the floor of the American Stock Exchange, his best friend from college. My godfather was a specialist and trader on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. So wow. my background is basically steeped in a lot of the world of trading. My father's father was an executive at a, actually at a retailer, at a big department store chain which no longer exists, but he was the CEO of a publicly traded company. So I guess that there's a little bit in the blood. Um, and I was very interested in my first job out of college. I was a trader on the floor of the Commodities Exchange in New York. And uh, so I was one of eight women with 800 men. Wow. And, um, you know, I really thought that I was going to be a trader for the rest of my life. Unfortunately, I realized that, and I say this unfortunately, but it was really fortunately that I realized very early on that Making money wasn't the only goal for me. It just didn't stick. And if you're a trader, there's really only thing to one thing to do. You know, as my father said, you're not working at Red Cross. You got to make money, as a <laughs> trader would say. So um, beyond that, then I, I ended up getting, you know, through twists and turns, I, I became interested in the world of personal financial information. And um, I became a certified financial planner. I was part of a company that grew over the course of 14 years. And I gave advice and managed money for individuals. And the way that we actually propelled the business forward was we actually hosted, my business partner and I at the time hosted a call-in radio show that mm -hmm. helped grow the business. And then I started doing television and people were very nice to me and they nurtured me and they mentored me. 
And I sold my company. And by the time I was coming out into the workplace in kind of the end of 2008, financial crisis, and early 2009, I had been doing a lot of national work for CBS News. And they had called me in and they said, hey, we're launching this new website. Would you like to get involved? And I did. And so I got involved and I really was, uh, it was a very funny happenstance, which someone reminded me of recently, which is that I said, oh, I don't want a real job. I've been working my butt off. I, I need a break. And three weeks later, I signed a contract. I started working for CBS in April of 2009. And uh, it all kind of moved ahead from there. That's terrific. And it's so interesting, Joe, when I talk to people who are successful like you are, a lot of the time I find they sort of evolve into things. It's not like they had their eye on this and they went to it. It's just sort of evolved into that. And your story, again, exemplifies that. You know, I always, when people ask me advice, I find that this generation, at least pre-COVID, millennials really wants to be the architect of their careers. I said, oh God, I, I gave more thought to where I was going out to dinner than like where I was going next in my career. So, <laughs> and it didn't hurt you any, right? You, you, I guess not. I mean, but you know, there's also lucky timing, right? You know, you just happen to be moving around at times where uh, people see you, and sometimes you can get lucky. And I think I was pretty lucky. I worked hard, but I think that a lot of people work hard. I got lucky to be in the right place at the right time and took advantage of that. Yes, and I'm certainly glad, and a lot of other people are millions are that you did. Now, looking for Jill is about looking into the future. However, we first like to look a little bit backwards. So how would you say that you're thinking about money, economics, investing, consumer behavior, and and things like that have changed over the years? And what has caused these changes in your thinking? Well, I think that when I was a trader, I was very mathematically based. I I love statistics. I was an options trader. So I, I sold the derivative, an option a contract that's based on something called a futures contract. So I I really was mathematically inclined and mm-hmm. I understood that. But I think that as soon as I got to the floor, I realized also that it was very emotional. Mm-hmm. And as I got into the world of providing financial advice to real people, not just looking at a bunch of statistics and modeling on a piece of paper and making a trading decision, I realize more and more, and I I believe this more to this day than ever, that it is our emotions that tend to push us in the wrong directions when it comes to money mistakes. And sometimes those wrong decisions can be fine and they don't harm you, but sometimes they really do harm you. And so even when I think about, you know, how people were reacting to the pandemic, I think doing that through the lens of understanding, hey, we're human beings we're emotional. These are scary times. I think it made me a lot more willing to understand. I remember when I was a young financial advisor and I said to a friend of mine who was a doctor, so she was early in her career as a surgeon. And I said, I can't believe these people are not taking my advice. Like they're, it's dangerous. The things they're doing. And she said, looked at me and she laughed. She goes, are you kidding me? I tell people not to drink, not to smoke and to walk a half a mile a day, walk 10 city blocks. They don't do it. And, you know, then they wonder why they're in such rotten conditions six months later when they come in and I have to do something. So, you know, I think I also learned that there are times where people are just not going to take that advice that you give. And it's okay. I shouldn't take it personally. I think I really took it personally early in my life. And now I realize, hey, you know what? It's human beings. That is very interesting. I don't know if we'll have time for this, but I was going to actually ask you later on. I was thinking about this this morning. 
the similarities between health and economics or mm. money. Uh, oh, yeah. There's so much advice that's out there that's overwhelming and oftentimes can even be in conflict. One person says, eat this. Another says, don't eat this. Somebody says, this is a great time to be in this. I just want to say that I always use health analogies because I think people really can relate to that. So I agree with you. I think that that is something that is really interesting. And, you know, also more so perhaps when, you know, the crap is hitting the fan where people can really understand how frightening it is to be afraid of a virus, like, and how it can be immobilizing. And at the same time, you know, you need to do something and the need and the fear are kind of like in conflict sometimes. It's just the difference, of course, in financial matters is that we have fear. Our countervailing emotion is usually greed. And you don't really get that greed factor when you're talking about your health. You might have take it for granted, but you know, you don't get that same real desire for more. Anyway, I think it's, it's a quite an, an excellent analogy. So if, you know, I'm happy to talk about that as well, or leave it here. Yeah, we might, we might get to that later if we have time, Jill. Now, let me ask you this. We're going to look now at more present times pre-COVID, pre-COVID, okay? okay? So we'll, we're going up to around the beginning of the year, early part of the year. What do you think are the biggest changes that have occurred in the financial and consumer marketplaces in recent times pre-COVID? You talked about your better understanding the emotions and the role they play. Let's talk a little bit more in the macro sense. What do you think are the big changes that have occurred more recently pre-COVID? Well, I think there have been some some major breakthroughs in my career, um, you know, at various times when it comes to what's happened in the world of investing and how it infects, impacts consumers. So I think the first big wave that I can remember is a discount brokerage. So you had a guy named Charles Schwab and who I was lucky enough to actually interview last year. Wow. And, you know, you have a guy who basically said, well, you know, you big companies, uh, I don't know why you're, I don't know. It seems crazy that you're trading, you're, you're charging this much money to execute a trade. So let me go back one before that. So the first I would say is really John Bogle and the creation of an index fund. And like that, that as like sort of the seventies, then the eighties, I would say discount brokerage. And then the nineties, it's online trading, just the ability for people to actually trade efficiently and smoothly. And I would say that in the late two thousands, the idea that you can have a robo advisor, you can have the ability to have an algorithm that kind of takes the inputs of your risk tolerance, your age, your time until you need the money and manage money for you pretty efficiently. That's like the big 2000s. And in the 2010s, Uh, it would be basically the cost of investing is now zero. It's like the next iteration of Charlie Schwab. And uh, I think that it is now easier than ever for individuals to efficiently invest their money if they pay attention to where the cheapest alternatives are and they try like heck not to buy something they don't understand. Jill, I must say, I love the way you summarize that It didn't take you very long, but you did hit on the very high points that have happened, not in the last few years, but over the last 20, 30 years. And you're absolutely right. You're you're dead on with that. And by the way, something else you said before that I was reminded of is the 
title of your book, which I mentioned at the beginning of the program, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. Hello, emotions, <laughs> right? Hello, yeah. emotions. Okay, now we're in COVID time. So I want to ask you, how would you assess the state of the economy, the stock market, which you know, by all measures has done quite well through mm -hmm. this, opportunities for investment today during covid and how does that compare if you follow this, Jill? And I don't know if you do. How does this compare with the rest of the world? So you know, I'm in this quite unique situation because of my role at CBS, which is I have to look big and open my eyes and be able to understand what is happening around the world and be able to report on it. And at the same time, you know, I have other aspects of my life where I go super duper micro. So I go from big picture the world I stop at the earth. I don't go into space. So I'm not that person. I'm good, good. Totally, completely uninterested in space. So that might be okay. a flaw in my character. So I look big. And, you know, in the big world, we have this horrible virus. It has spared no country. I think maybe Antarctica may not have actually any cases. But um, that's because those people have not left their, you know, stations of you know, measuring climate or something. You know, this is really something that has impacted all of us. So what is different is that each country's response has been slightly different. And, um, and then when you get to the United States, I think that the pandemic has really done something that is unnerving to a lot of economists and to investors alike. And that is it has, it's really shining a light on the inequalities that have always existed. And it has now exacerbated them. So, for example, if I look at that last employment report that came out for the month of September, in that report, we learned that the unemployment rate overall dropped to 7.9%. The unemployment rate for Black Americans, Black workers, is 12.1%. Now, there's always been a gap between them, but the gap was starting to narrow a little bit. And the gap between wages, so wage gains for low-income Black and Hispanic workers were starting to inch up, say from 2015 through 19. Now they're gapping again. The wage gap between men and women was actually starting to narrow a little bit. Now it's blowing out again. Mm. So I think that the pandemic has really been an accelerant to underlying trends that are sometimes quite uncomfortable to look at. And that may explain a lot of the stock market performance because the stock market doesn't really care who's winning and who's losing in terms of your society. What is the stock market? What is a stock, a company? You're putting money, making an investment into an organization that you hope can earn money over the next group of months, years, decades, potentially. Now, that company could be succeeding while a lot of the country is suffering. And so I think that what we're grappling with right now, and I'm talking to you on a morning where there's quite a bit of confusion as to whether there's going to be another round of stimulus or not. The president seems to say no, but then he changes not mine, maybe yes. We are hearing from economists like Jerome Powell is our Federal Reserve chair. He is practically begging Congress every single time he gets before Congress that we need more help. Now, is the economy going to come back? Sure. The question is, can we do more and help people along the way? Can we help those 10.7 million people who have lost their jobs? Can we help people who are suffering? Can we help people prevent a crisis from occurring where someone is evicted or someone has food insecurity? Can we help those people? 
And I think the answer is, of course, we can. I mean, we're the richest country in the world, right, in the history of time. And the answer is that Congress has to act. And yet, watching the stock market, you would almost feel like, well, what problem? And that disconnect is really about understanding that the stock market and the economy can diverge. They usually sort of end up in the same place over time, but they can diverge. And, you know, frankly, the fortunes in this country are diverging pretty dramatically. We started talking about, you know, are we going to have a V-shaped recovery or a W-shaped recovery or an L-shaped recovery? And now it starts looking like a K, uh, the letter K, where everybody in this country just sort of the whole letter, go think of the letter K and go straight down. Everybody drops down, like nobody's working. Everyone's fearful. We're kind of all in this together. We all suffer. Everyone's getting sick, right? Yeah. Now, as there's more information that emerges and companies start adjusting, if you're lucky enough to be a white collar worker, you can work from home, you own your home, you're not indebted and life's actually the same. Maybe you're even saving more money. Your fortunes start going up. So think of that letter K. So all down and then go up to the middle and now start picking up and say like, oh, there's a chunk of the country, probably about a quarter of the country that's doing fine. So go up to the right. And then there's that downward slope. And what we are seeing is that downward slope is what Jerome Powell and a lot of economists are worried about. There are a lot of people, millions of people who are in that downward slope, and we'd like to prevent them from suffering, not just because it's the right thing to do as a society, but because it's actually better for the economy when more people are saved from disaster. Absolutely right. And that dichotomy is huge. Just to comment on that, you'll know the answer to this, but with regard to the stock market, it's really only a small percentage of people, let's just say in the United States, who are invested in the stock market. So that's that's another element. The other thing I heard yesterday, and again, I'm sure you're on top of this, Jill, is that the people who are getting jobs, who had lost jobs, tend to be the people who had degrees. They have degrees. Mm. Whereas the people who were high school grads who've lost their jobs, they're not getting their jobs back. They're not getting new jobs. So there, there is, again, that example of the schism, right, between those who have and those who don't have. And you've very well pointed that out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really interesting. I was um, I did a radio hit this morning, a little segment with with one of our stations, one of the CBS stations, and they said, well, you know, we're on the phone with uh, our advertisers, and they tell us they that people when people are paid extra money in unemployment benefits, they stay home, they don't come to work. I said, well, I think that that's baloney, yeah. and I think what's really happening is people are staying home to take care of their kids. People are staying home because they're scared. And yeah, we should actually, we wanted to pay people to stay home. Like that was actually important. But now if you cannot figure out how to hire people and pay people enough to get them to come to your, to the job opening you have, then you better pay more. And if you can't pay more, then maybe you don't have a sustainable business. If you have to pay people rock bottom in order to make your model work, then it doesn't work. So figure out a new model. Capitalism can be very cruel. You know, I was a small business owner and I learned a lot of lessons. It's not pleasant. But what is incredibly clear is that no one has repealed the law of supply and demand. People in this country want to work. There is no doubt about it. There is a value we get from working. So the idea that you can't find people is preposterous. I remember I used to hear this. Oh, there's a skills gap. No, there's not. There's a wage gap. Pay more and people will show up. It's amazing thing how it works every time. (laughs) 
I love that. And I love the fact that you have had different positions in your life to give you different perspectives. I mean, being a trader gave you one perspective. It's all about the money, right? Mm -hmm. Then you're a small business person. Then you're working with consumers. So you have to listen to what they are. It's terrific. It makes you very well-rounded. Now, Jill, focusing on your areas of expertise, what do you think will be the long-term impact of COVID-19 here? And if possibly you're aware of it elsewhere too. I'm asking you this question, realizing that a year ago, you and I weren't even talking about mm. this. So, so you're go- only speculating here. I, I understand. But from your vantage point. Well, I interviewed a guy early in the pandemic who is a marketing professor at NYU. His name is Scott Galloway. And he said something that really seems to be playing out in a fairly significant way. And that is that it appears that the pandemic not only is an, has been an accelerant to some underlying trends in our economy in terms of inequality, but from a business point of view, the virus looks like it has jumped everyone ahead by almost 10 years to where you thought you would be. So his example was, because I, was, I, I had interviewed him to ask him about retail. He said, okay, so online shopping, which was at you know, let's say 12% of the all shopping, of all retail sales, is now probably going to be 18%. And that was going to happen anyway. And it's probably going to be more than that, but it just happened faster. Mm. And the decline of most department stores was happening already. It's just now it's accelerated. And the idea that as a retailer, you need to think differently about how you're going to induce someone to spend money with you that's happening. Even early in the crisis, fascinating. I interviewed a guy from uh, Consumer Reports who's one of the auto writers, and we were talking about how the virus may finally have sort of broken the back of the old time way to sell a car, that we could really come up with new ways to do things. And my anecdotal story about this is obviously online shopping has exploded and, and that's great. But, you know, For years, I would say to my mom, who's going to be 81, I know you love to play bridge. Why don't you play online? Oh, who wants to play online when I can play in person? Well, I'll tell you what. She said, you know, I remember saying, I'm never going to play online. And now this afternoon, she'll be spending three hours playing bridge online. So I think that a lot of the, the things that we have thought would occur are occurring now. Do I know what's how long it's going to take for the commercial real estate market in New York to come back? I do not know that. I just bumped into a neighbor of mine and we were talking about, is it two years? Is it three years? Is it one year? He goes, I don't know. Everyone who always bets against New York loses. So I think that we don't know. And I don't know if the trend of working from home in, it's not going to be the way it is now, but maybe it will be sustained. Uh, some of my colleagues in media are pretty darn happy being able to broadcast from home. And there is a way that we can use this maybe to get different kinds of stories and different people's stories on the air that doesn't require getting on a plane. And there's like a lower barrier of entry. So maybe that could be a positive outcome. Absolutely. Somebody had once said to me, Jill, on that same note, imagine if this would have happened in the 60s or the 70s when we didn't have all this technology, right? You and I couldn't be doing this. Yeah. So, and people would find it much more difficult to work at home. So that has also certainly played a role. Very interesting perspectives that you're sharing here. Let's talk about opportunities. And you're going to be wearing two caps here, okay? okay. And you're good, you're good at wearing two caps. 
So the one cap is the Jill that worked on Wall Street and understands a lot about the stock market and opportunities that are there. And then there's the Jill who's working with the average Joe who may not even be a player in the stock market. And they're trying to figure out, what do I do, Jill, to manage my money, to maybe make it grow a little bit over the next several years, given what's going on in this world? Where do you think would be the best opportunities for these different individuals, either to grow their assets, perhaps through investing, or just to preserve their assets? Well, luckily, the advice is the same for everybody. Oh, good. So um, I have tried to stick to this because I think that people who are investing think they're way smarter than they are because they're just as dumb as the rest of us and just as much guided by our emotions. Anybody who is starting out, I always adhere to the big three. So this can be your kid who's just graduated from college. It could be you who's just finally landed on your feet after financial uncertainty. But the three most important aspects of everyone's financial life are number one, to have an adequate emergency reserve fund. And I don't know if you did not learn that lesson in the last seven months, I I don't know where you've been. So six to 12 months of your living expenses in a safe place, not under your mattress, you know, in a savings, a checking, a short-term CD, a short-term bond, whatever, but short means no risk and it's got to be there for you. And I know interest rates are low and I'm sorry, but too bad. That's what happens when you have an emergency, it cannot be at risk. Number two is to actively and aggressively pay down debt, not mortgage debt. I'm talking about credit card debt, auto loans, student loans. And you do that to the best of your ability. You know, you, you know what your cash flow is. I'm not going to tell you what you can afford. And the third is while you're doing all the, those other two things, which are pretty tough, you have to try to maximize retirement contributions. And for some people, that may be the only thing you can do while you're carrying student loan and trying to build up your emergency reserve fund is the only thing you may be able to do is put into uh, up to the 6% match at your employer. For some people, that may be, I don't have a retirement plan at work. I have an IRA or a Roth IRA. And the only thing I can do is I can put uh, you know 50 bucks a month into That's fine to the best of your ability. Those are your three big, that's your big three. Yes. Once you have that under your belt, you are now an investor. And every <laughs> investor should remember the magic rule that John Bogle said, which is the way that you make money is not being the smartest stock picker in the world, but it is keeping your expenses low. And you don't have to be a stock picker. You can buy a nice diversified portfolio of index funds, or you can go hunt around for who you think is the best stock picker in the world. Or you, you, know, you can also bang your head against the wall, whatever you'd like to do. I myself, I'm, I'm a big bicyclist. So To me, sitting around and finding the best stock is not nearly as much fun as going out for a long bike ride. (laughs) And that's kind of how I live my life. Now, there are people who are good at picking stocks. That's fine. Just statistically, if you look at long term over the past, you know, say three or four decades, it's very rare that the same person keeps beating the index against what he or she is measured consistently. So in which case, like, why am I banging my head against my wall? So as an investor, I would stop trying to think that you're going to find the best, the smartest, the ist, the superlative. Yeah. Get a game plan together. Stick to your game plan. You know, being a good investor essentially means that you have the discipline to stick to your game plan and to keep those emotions at bay. And the reality is that when the markets were cratering in March and people were calling me and they were freaking out about having their money at risk, 
I said, this is what it means to be an investor. I mean, I did not think we were going to lose a third of our value in six weeks, but tough luck. That's the deal. That's the and deal. if you don't like that roller coaster, then you're going to have to be on a merry-go-round. But the merry-go-round, I hate to tell you, is not going to pay you enough interest to keep pace with inflation and taxes. So all that means is if you want to be an inefficient investor and keep your risk really low, then you're going to have to save a crap load of money. Yes. That's the antidote. That's yes. it. That's Got all. You. That's all that there's nothing more to it. It's like we want to make this you know, everyone in the financial services industry, not everyone, many people. Many people. They really do like to create a whole kabuki theater around <laughs> oh, we're the best stock pickers, we're the best researchers. They don't need yeah. that. What did Warren Buffett write in his letter, his annual letter a few years ago? He said, hey, my heirs, this is what you do. You inherit my money. You put 90% of it in an S&P 500 index. You put 10% in treasury bills and go to sleep at night. Wow. I love what you just said. It's, it's so simplistic. It does apply to everybody. And it's also a question of one's priorities. And I'm going to relate to what you said real quickly, Joe. One is that I remember in my 30s, I spent, and I'm going to now say wasted, a lot of time trying to find what I thought were the best mutual funds. And mm -hmm. I spent hours and hours and hours trying to do that. It was really, as I look back, a waste of time. Secondly, you mentioned bicycling. I used to have a bicycle touring business. It was a ton <laughs> of fun. We took people on trips. A lot of them came from New York, by the way, and we had a lot of fun. But the point that you made was, you have to decide what your priorities are going to be. And yeah, if you get your jollies out of doing all this analysis and figuring out what's the best mutual fund, then do it. But for most of us, it's getting on a bicycle or taking a walk or playing golf or whatever it might be. So very well stated. Now, one other thing I've got to ask you there is there is a lot of talk, more than talk, action going on with artificial intelligence, blockchain stuff. I had Tim Draper on recently. He's very big in the blockchain, but he's big into a lot of other things. And I just saw now Fidelity is going to have an index fund related to blockchain. I know you're saying don't zoom in necessarily on this, that, or the other, but where do you think that fits in, if at all, over the next five or 10 years? Is that going to be part of this acceleration you talked about that you learned from the NYU? Yeah. Guys? Uh, you know, look, I think that artificial intelligence and blockchain and all of these trends in technology will continue. You don't have to worry about it in terms of how to pick your best next thing. What you need to do is take advantage of tools that exist for you. So blockchain is very cool technology. And, you know, I'm sure he described it more eloquently than I would, but I just, you know, it's like a distributed ledger. Like we're all looking at the same ledger. Something happens. We all see it in real time. So it's going to help a lot of industries. Do I think that like Bitcoin is a good investment? No. But is the technology, this thing called blockchain interesting? Sure. Real, I mean, it's very interesting when you talk about it in terms of trading, because it essentially could get rid of many middle men and women in the process of settling a transaction. And that's why it is, you know, it could almost make the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ obsolete. It's, yeah. it's fascinating. But everyone else, who cares, right? Like, all right, that'll happen when it happens. And in terms of artificial intelligence or mathematical applications to your real life, this is happening already. This is a thing called a robo-advisor. This is, you know, Vanguard and Schwab and companies like Betterment and Wealthfront that are able to use technology to align who you are with the 
technology that's available to help you invest more efficiently. Yeah, that's all great. But yes, that's happening. And it's like saying, you know, really, where do I think that there's going to be transformation in the economy of technology has always been big. I'm more interested in areas that are really boring, that uh, need technology to improve them, like healthcare. I like the idea that telemedicine is kind of now starting to get a little bit more interesting, that people are like, oh, you know what? Maybe I don't have to go to the doctor. I can talk to my doctor like I'm talking to you. One of my best friends is a dermatologist, and I remember early in the summer, I'm like, is this poison ivy? She's like, no, this is the bug bite. You know, like I held, I went like this. I'm like, what is that? And I held it up to her and it's a bug bite. Don't worry. It's not poison ivy, you know? So there are certain things that I think are exciting. I think that education to consider that education could finally, especially higher education, become more affordable to become more accessible because we are using technology. I think that's more interesting than thinking like, well, how can I settle a trade faster? Again, well stated, and I'm very excited about the educational possibilities of leveling the the playing field. Jill, last couple of things. As you mm-hmm. well know, there are many individuals who've lost their jobs due to COVID. Mm-hmm. We have other people changing careers. We have other people who are like me doing some things after their first careers or on other things now. And then, of course, there are those many students you were sort of alluding to there who are trying to figure out, well, what do I do with my life? Where do you see, again, this is sort of macro, or maybe it's micro, depending on how you look at it. Where would you point them to? Where do you see opportunities for these disparate groups of people? Some of them might be more investors, but a lot of them are looking for careers or just a student. What do I major in? Jill, help me. I love this question. You know, it's so funny because I'm working on a story for CBS talking about job pivoting amid a pandemic. Like, what do you do? I'll make it real life for me. I'm in this thing called media. Media is a shrinking industry. Would I tell somebody to go and get a um, advanced degree in journalism right now? I mean, yeah, I guess if you have rich parents and you can afford it, sure. But for someone who had to take on tons and tons of loans, maybe not. My advice, when I have friends of mine who, and I don't have children, so I have 13 nieces and nephews by marriage and three nieces and nephews from my sister. And my advice has always been, I really don't think that what you decide to study is the most important thing. I said, for if you want to get my input, it would be learn how to write because writing is important no matter what. Take a statistics class because there is probability in everything you do in life. And if you don't like mathematical statistics, take the statistics for social sciences because it's useful. It's just really useful. Okay. Take a psychology class because it's going to, or go to therapy, whichever one you prefer, Uh, (laughs) you know, take, really understand how people work and then take an accounting class and that's it. There's four classes. So if you just did, if you did those four accounting and statistics, psychology, and, you know, a writing and maybe even one economics. So I'll I'll throw like, you know, a survey economics class in there. That's it. That's all you need. And, you know, everything else. I'm not one of these people like study your passion, like master those five things. Tell me you can write with intelligence. You can communicate effectively. Tell me you understand people. Tell me, you know, in broad senses, how the economy works. Tell me that you can read a balance sheet. Those are very simple things. I could probably teach them to ninth graders, but if you didn't get the ability to take that, I'll tell you, probably you should take a coding class, but I never took a coding class. So I didn't take one. I didn't take a computer science 
or a science class at all, a hard science class in college. I probably should have, but I didn't. Yeah. So that's it. And so I think that, you know, you try to, you do that and, you know, you work your ass off. That's it. There's no, there's no easy way around it. I never took a job really for the money. I think if you're thinking about what to do next, you think about what interests you and you talk to a ton of people and you start to understand what is it, that thing, that job that I think I want, what is that? I have a couple of friends, children who are, you know, they wanted to get into television production and film production. Well, you know, this stopped. So I said, you can talk to a whole bunch of my friends who are sitting at home, twiddling their thumbs, figuring out how to pay their mortgage. And that might be, and and my friends are very happy to talk to you, but there's a real, in this moment, think about what you really, what you would like to do. Think about how you can earn a living. And um, if you don't know, take any job. Any job can teach you something about yourself, about the industry, even a really lousy job can teach you that it's, it can teach you what you don't want to do. My friend's daughter right now is, is a paralegal for a big law firm. He says, this is fascinating. She's working from eight in the morning till 10 or 11 o'clock at night in my basement, of course. So it's not, he's like, I understood that like she's not having any of the fun part. He said, this may be curing her of her desire to go to law school. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. We're going to close with you talking more about how people can reach you. But I do want to go back to something I mentioned when I introduced you, which you have totally reinforced in my mind, and I'm sure the listeners' minds, translating complicated business and economic news into understandable, relatable topics for everyday viewers and listeners. You do that. I love the way, you know, these are, if you do these five things, learn these five things, they're foundational. And from then you can figure it all out. I love that. Absolutely. Now, Jill, you've written a book. There may be another one. Who knows? You've got plenty of time, God willing, to write another book. There's a podcast. There's a blog. There's you're on TV. You're on radio. I mean, people can't escape you. But how do they find you if they want if they want to find you most directly? Most directly. Just go to my website, JillOnMoney.com. All my stuff is there. That's where we that's where it lives in JillOnMoney.com. There again, very simple. (laughs) Jill, thank you so much for your time, for your um, perspectives, the information. It's invaluable. Well, thanks for having me. And I wish you the best of luck with your podcast. Thank you very much, Jill. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.